Hello, and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And today, we're here with a little feedback episode for you. That's right. Every third week, we share some of the stories you, our listeners, have shared with us about the topics we've most recently covered on the show. Because a lot of y'all write in, and a lot of you have super great things to say. Today's topics are made-for-TV holiday movies and New Year's resolutions. Jolenta, shall we start off with all the folks out there who have thoughts on New Year's resolutions? Yes, 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 yes. And I want to start with all of our listeners out there who love them because a lot of you love them. Yes. Emma writes in to say, I always make New Year's resolutions and I always follow them. One year, my resolution was to not wear trousers for the whole year. It made me feel really good. And I've never worn trousers since. Another year was to watch as much Star Trek as possible. And now I've seen all Star Trek ever and have been to a Star Trek convention, which was great. Another year was to eat more parathas, which obviously turned out really well. In 2023, my resolution was to make more friends after losing so many connections during the pandemic. It's actually been much harder than most of my resolutions and has involved being really vulnerable and putting myself out there a lot. At the beginning of the year, I felt I'd lost a lot of my social skills. But as we're coming to the end of the year, I feel I have been really successful and I'm very proud of myself. I now have a new social group, which is pretty well cemented. We call ourselves Wholesome Fun, and we've done all kinds of lovely activities. I have made at least 10 new friends this year. I would never make any resolution that made me feel bad about myself, such as to lose weight or eat less chocolate. But my joyful New Year's resolutions have made me feel great and given me a fun shape to the year. Oh, I love that. I love the idea that your resolutions never are things that are punishing or make you feel bad. They're not saying, you know, you need to fix this thing. But they're ways to just expand yourself, it sounds like. All of these sound expansive, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. Additive, which is what we like. Yes, yes. And uh, hats off for... Giving up trousers. I rarely wear them myself. I was going to say, Kristen, I feel can relate. Yes, yes. And hats off for going to a fan convention. I went to my first fan convention this year and I loved it. That was Golden Con, not Star Trek for Golden Girls fans. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's amazing. I love all of these. And the making new friends one, that's always additive, right? I love that. Yeah. And who doesn't like wholesome fun? Like, I'm very impressed by you. Yes, yes. Jennifer also loves New Year's resolutions. She says, Mm. in 2021, I resolved to throw away fewer disposable cups. But the best thing about it was the awareness it required for me to count them. Then Mm. in 2022 and 2023, I just resolved to use fewer cups than the year before. Last year, I only threw out 31. This year, I'm at 29. It's just nice to have one thing to focus on that's directly in my control. I like that. I like that these letter writers seem to be writing about resolutions as more of sort of like a positive theme, mm-hmm. which is much more fun than, you know, a restrictive, almost like complaint about yourself. Yes. I think that's such a good way to put it, Jolenta. Yeah. And Marla says, 
I love New Year's resolutions. I love writing a big list of goals for the next year, 24 for 2024 style, making a vision board, adding checkpoints to my fresh new planner. It feels like a clean whiteboard. I also do a yearly review practice, which helps me remember all the good things that happened. Otherwise, my brain tends to head in a critical direction. I use the same prompt list and write it in my planner. It's very fun to look back on past years to see how I answered them. For all these reasons, New Year's is my favorite holiday. I used to think it was Halloween, but the older I get, the more I realize it's New Year's that really fires me up. Cringe, maybe, but I don't care. <laughs> oh, Marla, Marla, we're not cringing. We're cheering for you that you found something that made you happy. Yes, exactly. And I always love a fun, like, play on numbers, like 24 for 2024, very fun. That is a lot. That's a lot of things, though. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> Lots of resolutions. But one of the big things that jumped out to me about you, Marla, is your look back. And it turns out yes. you are not the only one who does the end of the year look back. We heard from other listeners who also do that. City wrote in to say, I do an end of the year reflection. Two, actually. One for my work and what I want to do better in the coming year. And also one for my personal life. Makes sense. Love it. Julie writes in to say, I don't do resolutions anymore, but now I do a top 10 list with my husband reflecting on the previous year. We make independent lists of our 10 most impactful moments of the previous year. It could be good, bad, or just something that sparked change or felt significant. Then we open a bottle of wine and share our list with each other and talk about each one. It's always fun to see if we rank items differently or if there is anything unexpected on the others list. Ooh, that sounds fun. Right. I might want to copy that. I like that idea. Yeah, and I like comparing it with someone else who's sort of been living a life adjacent to yours to be like, do the same things pop up? Oh, that reminds me of this thing I totally forgot about. Like, I like that. Yeah. I imagine there's also moments for laughter, too, when one mm -hmm. person says, oh, yeah, one of my top 10 items was when we went on our 10th anniversary trip this year. And the other person's like, oh, I forgot we went on a trip this year. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, some of you wrote in to say you have your own take on goal setting that's not quite a New Year's resolution. Yeah. Becky says, my struggles with perfectionism have meant that not achieving a goal can feel like failing and risk giving me a negative outlook for the rest of the year. I am not against goals, though, but I'm just not keen on starting a year with them, especially in the UK where it's cold, dark and wet until March, and I'd prefer to hibernate until then. I tend to just set goals when it feels right in my life to have a goal. I have in the past tried to do quarter years where I set goals to achieve across 13 weeks. After 13 weeks is a new year, so you get to start again. It's a more manageable chunk of time and helps with focus. And after 13 weeks, I can either keep going or do something new. Having opportunities to reset frequently is helpful in seeing if the goal is the right one for me. Rather than forcing myself to stick to something, I decided at the start of the year before life events came into play. Oh, Becky. Love that. That's something I might need to steal also. Right? Yeah. It makes so much sense. It's like I used to do that when I was teaching because I taught year round. I did summer classes, too, and everything was just broken into quarters. And it was like new slate. We're working on different things. We yeah. were focusing on different kinds of outcomes, perhaps. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you could just do that in a regular life, too. 
Yeah. It seems also just a little kinder to ourselves. Yes. You know? What you say in the end, Becky, about, you know, starting the year with this grandiose plan, you don't even know what's going to be coming your way in 180 days from now, much less like 280 days. So making a huge goal at the start of the year, yeah, it doesn't necessarily allow for life to get in the way. But 13 weeks, that sounds more manageable. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But let's be real, not all of you are on board with resolutions. We can't all be, right? (laughs) No. Cherie says, I hate resolutions. I generally maintain good habits most of the year. So when January rolls around and I suddenly can't get a lane in the pool or a machine at the gym, my favorite salad blend is out of stock and so on, it is really frustrating. I have no issue with people setting goals and making changes in their own habits. It's the fact that everyone does it all at the same time that I hate. I keep (laughs) trying to campaign for birthday resolutions instead of New Year's resolutions so that things will be more evenly distributed. Who's with me? Ooh, I could be with you. I'm down for that. Yeah, part of my resistance to New Year's resolutions is just like, fuck it. If everyone else is doing it, like, I don't fucking care. Like, (laughs) I'm going to be contrarian for no reason. (laughs) I have trouble with authority, even when authority is like the general zeitgeist or like tradition. (laughs) So, yeah, I like the idea of doing it at a different (laughs) year marker. That's that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Spread it around. Yeah. And Kath wrote in to say, almost 20 years ago, I made the first New Year's resolution I was actually able to keep to never make another New Year's resolution. Ah, uh, That's a fun one. That's that a good is one. Fun. <laughs> I like that. I like that approach, too. You know, you're not going to fail if you resolve to never do it again. Yes. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. But when we're back, We'll be joined by a very special guest to talk about made-for-TV holiday movies. Hey, everyone. We're back. And now, Jolenta, we have a very special guest. Yes, we do. We are joined by Juliet Giglio. Juliet has written multiple holiday movie screenplays that have been produced by Lifetime, Hallmark, and other networks. They include Reba McIntyre's Christmas in Tune, Dear Christmas, A Very Nutty Christmas, and Christmas Reservations. Other credits include Disney's Tarzan, Pizza My Heart, and Return to Halloween Town. Juliet, we are so excited to have you here today. Can you tell us, first and foremost, how did you get into this business of writing screenplays for -for made-for-TV holiday films? You know, I love, love Christmas, and it's always been a very big part of my life. I go a little bit overboard. Uh, I don't want you to see what my basement looks like. I usually have five <laughs> five different Christmas trees. But the way I got into it was that it's basically a rom-com. Mm. And my husband and I, we've been writing in Hollywood for a while when we moved up to upstate New York. And we had a friend who had written a couple Christmas movies. And he said, you know, you should really meet my, my producer because you guys love Christmas. And these Christmas movies are very similar to what we've been writing, except they were rom-coms. And that's kind of how we got into it. We met a producer, Melissa Joan Hart's mom, Paula Hart, who was producing these. And she liked the idea we had, which was what became A Very Nutty Christmas. And from there, one thing kind of led to another, which was exciting. 
That's awesome. I've seen a very nutty Christmas. Very enjoyable. Thank you. Still, <laughs> still my favorite, maybe. You know, we always loved Elf. It's our little oh. homage to Elf. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It makes sense. <laughs> totally, totally. And that was actually an idea that we'd had for some time, but we didn't really know what to do with it. And when the opportunity came up to present a Christmas idea, we're like, oh, we've got one. Oh my gosh. And that's, that's why that was the first. So, Juliet, I have to ask, because made-for-TV holiday films, they're often criticized for being, you know, unrealistic, corny, nutty, perhaps, if I, <laughs> if I may use some yeah. wordplay. What's your response to that criticism? I say bring it. You know, what's wrong with, <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with a little corniness? If it's bringing us happiness during a stressful month of November, December, I'm totally fine with it. And I remember when I first uh, heard someone say that to me, and I was I was a little caught off guard at first. And I thought, no, it's a good thing. Corniness, cheesiness, that's the other one you always hear. But that actually makes it fun. And I think the charm of these movies is it reminds us of our childhood. Mm. And our childhood was kind of cheesy at times and corny and fun. And these movies bring us a lot of nostalgia to, I think, simpler times before we became adults and, and life got complicated. You know, back when we were just worried about making cookies and having hot cocoa after sledding, if we could sled, or after, you know, decorating the tree, things like that. Yeah. And I'll always add to this, like, why would we need all of our movies to be realistic anyway? We never expect that of Die Hard, for example. Are we angry that Die Hard isn't realistic? <laughs> That's a very good point. And look at the Fast and Furious movies, which are so... Oh my gosh. They're cheesy too, but we love them. You know, they're over the top. Right. I was going to say also, like when you compare it to just a romantic comedy, I'm like, just add add a holiday and like the cheesiness levels the same. Like, yeah, holidays are a bit <laughs> cornier, but like not much. Exactly. So it's, it's it's funny that we we accept that level of sort of silliness in lots of other genres. But this one, we're like, we're putting our foot down. Like, <laughs> I know. I why? Know. <laughs> well, I, I think partly is maybe because there are so many of them during a very mm. brief period of time. It's, right, it's, almost, right. it's almost like wallpaper on your TV. It's like every minute there's a new Christmas movie. And certainly Hallmark helps to bring that on. But all the other networks have jumped in as well. Oh, totally. I, I think another aspect of it is really the fact that they are movies that are trying to target female viewers and mm. that a lot of the storylines center around women. And we tend to look at media differently if it is, quote, women's media. Right. And in the case of holiday films, some people say, oh, it's not just targeting women. It's anti-feminist, these storylines, all these women giving up their dreams to marry a guy on a maple syrup farm and so on. And what do you say to that when people say, you know, this is anti-feminist schlock, this isn't good for women? I would argue against that as well, because I think in all these movies, the women have a lot of agency. They're the ones who are controlling the narrative. They're controlling the plot. Sure, are they not happy in their love life typically? Yes, but oftentimes they're very satisfied in their career life and they have strong family ties. And those things, those mean a lot. And I think these movies, a lot of time, they don't typically give up their job or give up their families for the guy. In the end, they get it all. Mm. I don't think that's anti-feminist. I mean, I always think of feminism as like trying to have what the men have, maybe, and, and they have it all, you know? So why can't we have everything? 
And as someone who's written four of these, we work really hard to give them unique careers or or careers where they are the top of their game, whether they're a doctor, a lawyer, or running their own business. Yes, typically they run their own businesses, but certainly they are completely in power of their job. The only thing they're not so happy about is maybe their love life and maybe they're you know not so thrilled about Christmas because of the stress of it all. Right. I was going to say, I also make this argument for Real Housewives franchises as well. I also make an argument for the representation aspect of these made-for-TV holiday movies. They're showing women of different ages, sizes, and colors, often far more than, you know, your more mainstream non-holiday films. And I mean, you would know more about this than I. They also, I believe, employ lots of women as well, right? That is correct. When we were making our Lifetime movies, there was a mandate for a while that they were only hiring female directors. And I thought that was great because when you've got that mandate and it's out there, you're like, you have to get a female director. You can't say, oh, well, I know this guy. And I think that helped a lot. And in terms of the screenwriting, most of the screenwriters were at least, I mean, I write with my husband, but most of them were women or at least a, a 50-50 team or, or all women. And also it's employing a lot of actresses who've been overlooked, who were once great and now they're a little bit older and they're discovering great roles. And just to second what Joel Lento was saying about The Real Housewives, women over 40 are oftentimes just treated as, you know, disposable outside of reality shows or holiday movies. And then in these types of genres, we get to really see they still are great. They never stopped being great. They just got to an age that Hollywood decided they devalued them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing that um, that these movies do so well are the second chance romance or the later in life romances. And, and typically we've only seen these with men. We see these older men, you know, hooking up with women who are half their age or 20 years younger. And these stories show that life's not over if you're if your spouse dies or if if you never did get married or if you had a divorce. All of these movies typically have second chance uh, romances. And, right. and usually they're not always the main plot, but they're the secondary plot. I know in Christmas Reservations, we had multiple plot lines going, I think four different romances going. But it's you're allowed to do so many more things and show women. I think, to your point, both of you, you see women who are more fully formed. They're not just this caricature. Yes, exactly. Not just there to support the man or soothe the man or cheer for the man. They're there to fulfill like multiple aspects of their life. Exactly. I want to talk about money for a second because you have worked on both mainstream Hollywood films and made for TV holiday films. What's the difference in budget? And do you think a lower budget is part of what leads certain movies to get less respect, just in general? Well, what I'm going to say is there's a difference between movies that are made for for cable, it was traditionally cable TV, so say Lifetime and Hallmark, versus a movie that's made for Netflix or a feature mm. film. And I think that that's more the, the question. It's not so much that they're Christmas movies, not because they're Christmas movies do they have different budgets. Right. It's really just who's making them. And so Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies have a much lower budget than Netflix, but they're making a ton of them versus, you know, Netflix maybe makes a couple a year and their budgets can be 25, 30 million. It can be a lot. 
versus mm, the other ones right. are a fraction of that. So that's part yeah. of it. Now, having said that, there are some big bloated Christmas movies that cost a lot of money and nobody went to see them. And at the end of the day, it's the story yeah. that's behind it. And I think that plenty of these movies on Lifetime and Hallmark, they have some great stories behind them. And you look at the Lindsay Lohan movie that did do so well on Netflix. That was a big budget movie and it looked great. But honestly, mm. it could have also been on Lifetime or Hallmark. Oh, totally. The only other thing I should touch on too, though, is just the time length. Because the Christmas movies for Lifetime and Hallmark are made and they have to be aired in this two-hour window, they're going to be shorter. And for that mm. reason, sometimes they feel like, well, wait, that was too quick. But it's because you're dealing with the commercials and the time constraints. Whereas Netflix, you could have a two-hour movie that's really a two-hour movie. So I, I, right. I envy them for their, their time length and their budgets. <laughs> <laughs> but I personally love that the movies are not overstuffed on yeah. Lifetime or Hallmark because I'm one of those rare people who's like, too many movies are too long nowadays. I don't want to sit through three hours of this thing. I yeah. like a quick, snappy movie that knows what its point is and it knows how to get there. And I also personally feel like a lot of Hollywood hemorrhages a lot of money. I think they spend it in the wrong places and I think that they're wasteful both in terms of the cash and environmentally wasteful in the process. So I'm all for like, let's make it less expensive and let's make it fun and let's make it efficient. So that's my take on it. And you know, it's amazing what the directors do. We worked with this one woman, mm. Emily Moss Wilson on our two last movies and she's fantastic. What she can do with like a very small budget is incredible and, and just fill the frame and make it seem like there's much more money going behind it. There was another company we worked with where all they make are Christmas movies and they start to build this huge sort of arsenal of all these different Christmas props and, and trees and everything right. and they can use them over the years. And so, their films look great, too. It sounds like your basement with all your Christmas Yeah, it is. <laughs> they have like a warehouse, a Christmas warehouse. So like, what kind of town square you need? Like, exactly. what sort of a giant Christmas tree are you looking for? Exactly, exactly. I love that. Yeah, and then they also do a lot in post-production, too, where I remember our first film on Nutty, they were filming it in May, and I was like, well, how are you going to get the snow in here? And I said, oh, don't worry, we'll do it in post. And they go in and they paint all the roofs white. And then they would mm. lay, be laying down these large sheets of of cotton all over the ground and make it look like there was snow on the ground. So they've got, they know what they're doing. That's so cool. Now, tell us about your newest book, The Trouble with Tinsel, and tell us whether you plan to eventually turn it into a film. Well, that would be very exciting. So our newest book, which I wrote with my husband, Keith Giglio, and it's called The Trouble with Tinsel. And it's sort of loosely based on our lives as the two main characters are screenwriters. And they have just found out that a script they wrote together long ago has just been greenlit. Only one problem, they've broken up. She lives in Brooklyn now. He still lives in LA. And so for the month of December, they're going to be filming this movie, which is not a Christmas movie, but the whole story takes place during Christmas. So we get to see this couple falling in love again. And also we get to experience what it's like in LA Christmas, something that we don't see as much. 
a tinsel town Christmas. Guess it? Yeah. <laughs> now it's coming together, It took right? me a second, but I got there. <laughs> you got it. Exactly. That's good. So anyway, but it's a lot of fun. And there's, of course, a fake engagement. And Ooh. you get the zaniness of the film business. You get the silliness of an L.A. I remember one time a neighbor spent $5,000 to cart in snow just so all the kiddies in the neighborhood could have a little snow hill on which to toboggan down. And now that I live in upstate New York, I'm like, who would spend that much money bringing in snow? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but that was, that's a really fun part of the book. And I would, we would love to see it made into a movie. We do have a producer who's working on that end right now. And we'll, we'll see how it goes because some, some of the um, Christmas movies do come from books. And, and that would be mm. fun. But in the meantime, we hope everyone, you go and find it in your local bookstore. Independent bookstores can carry it. Or, of course, Barnes & Noble. Or, you know, if, if it's easier for you to order on Amazon, that's fine, too. But it just came out, so we're very excited about it. Congratulations. Thank you. It thank sounds you so awesome. Juliet, thank you so much for talking to us today. Where can people find more of you? Thank you for asking. We do have a website and it's jkgilio.com. And you'll see fun photos of us on all our different Christmas movies with different stars and just sort of having fun at Christmas time. So that would be great. So JK, Juliet, Keith, that's why it's JK. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again and happy holiday season to you. Thank you so much for having me in. And now I can go back to decorating my Christmas tree. Yes. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. But when we're back, Joelenta, you and I are going to announce a very special upcoming How to Be Fine series. Stay with us. We are back. And now, Kristen, as promised, we're going to announce a month-long series for the show that we are super, super excited about. It's called New Year, Same Old BS. (laughs) Jolenta, you deserve full credit for the name of the series. We were struggling so hard to come up with a name for the series, but we all love the name. It's New Year, Same Old BS. And each week during the month of January for this series, we're going to dive into a different fad diet. That's what we mean by the same old BS. So what we're going to do is explain what these fad diet rules were, why it's problematic, where it came from, why it's historically significant. So there's going to be a little culture, a little bit of history, and a little bit of eye rolling along the way. Yep. If you're sick of hearing about dieting this new year, come listen to us because We're guessing that you've heard of all of the diets we're going to cover, perhaps maybe even tried one of them. In our society, it's hard to not be seduced by that sweet, sweet fad diet rhetoric. Yeah, it really is. But we want to be your oasis this January. We want you to be able to come to us and to maybe laugh a little bit and learn a little bit about why all these fad diets are so awful and why we hear about them so much despite this. Yep. So we are so excited about this series. We hope you join us. There may or may not be discussion of tapeworms. (laughs) Let's be real. There will be. (laughs) (laughs) Again, that's New Year, same old BS for the entire month of January. 
And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you, as always, to our production team at Stitcher, our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantel Holder, and our composer and engineer, Casey Holford. Reminder, you can always weigh in on the conversation at facebook.com slash groups slash Kristen Angelenta. You can also write to us at kristenangelenta at gmail.com with comments or to ask for advice. Oh, and if you haven't done it already, give us a little rating and review wherever you're listening. It helps people find the show. It helps us know what you like and don't like about the show. You can even leave a little rating with a comment about what you want us to cover in the future on the show. So do that. And uh, until next time, I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher. 